Hey, Helicopter Podcast listeners, this is John Gray from the Hangar Z Podcast. I want to let you all know Vertical Fowler's Spring 2024 issue is now available. In our Spring 2024 issue, we head over to Leon County for a look at how law enforcement agencies in Northern Florida are combining forces to enhance crime fighting. We also visit Metro Aviation in Shreveport, Louisiana to learn about the work behind installing a Metro interior in an Airbus helicopter. We connect with the experts in the search and rescue sector for an update on the latest trends, training, and tools using helicopter rescue missions. And finally, we catch up with the Los Angeles Police Department's Aviation Unit for a look at its training programs. All this, plus highlights of some new products and services that made their debuts at Heli Expo 2024. To check out the latest issue of Vertical Valor, go to verticalvalor.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to find magazines. Enjoy. Hey guys, it's Halsey with the Helicopter Podcast, and on today's episode, I'm doing a panel, uh, which means essentially I have a group of industry professionals joining me on today's show, where we discuss a whole bunch of different helicopter-specific topics. Uh, the whole point of this is just to have multiple perspectives on uh, certain, called issues within the industry, other news. In fact, I just looked on my vertical daily. And pulled some topics uh, from from directly from them. So thank you uh, for supplying that news. Uh, in fact, one of the news articles that dropped on Friday uh, was preliminary review of the Chinook accident that happened with Rotac helicopters. And uh, so we kind of dive into that. Uh, obviously, awful anytime an accident occurs within the industry. And this is a good opportunity for industry people to talk about it. Uh, so sit back, relax, and. Joy today's panel interview. As always, a special thanks to Celicopter for producing this podcast. Specializing in helicopter evaluations, faster sales, and superb service, Celicopter is the go-to agency for clients expecting immediate results. Celicopter's team of helicopter professionals are the best in the business. Using their aviation expertise, a nationwide network, and a proprietary 76-step listing strategy, Celicopter will convert your listing from Mayday to Payday. Ready to get started? Text HELICOPTER to 1-855-CELICOPTER. That's HELICOPTER to 1-855-735-5226. And a Celicopter pilot agent will reach out. Celicopter. List it. Sell it. Done. All right, what is up? This is Halsey Schneider with the Helicopter Podcast, and I'm super excited. Not only today uh, is this a video podcast. If you've been a listener from day one, uh, you might have recalled that I think our first 10, 11 episodes were actually video, uh, and then we kind of went to an audio only, and now we're trying to bring back video. So I'm excited uh, to be doing video, and I'm also ultra excited because today I'm doing a panel interview with a, a group of not just industry professionals, but industry friends of mine. Um, and we are excited to uh, kind of discuss uh, helicopter-specific topics with industry professionals. So uh, I'd like to go around the room here, uh, do a quick introduction with everyone, and then we'll just jump right into it. I am hoping to do panel interviews uh, once every month, maybe once every two months. 
and we'll kind of have a rotating panel. So if you are interested in being a member on our panel, please contact us. You can uh, get us on uh, Facebook or Instagram at the Helicopter Podcast. And please make sure that you continue to like uh, our podcast and follow us on social media. So uh, first introduction is my good buddy, Marcus Vogel, uh, joining us from Ontario, Canada. Marcus, what's happening? What's going on? Happy to be on today. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Marcus, just if you wouldn't mind, you've actually been a guest. In fact, everyone on the panel today has been a guest. But just give a little quick snapshot of what you're currently doing, uh, what your role is, uh, and some of the cool things that you're doing with Big Blue Air. Yeah, so I'm a chief pilot for Big Blue Air and operations manager. Uh, we are basically a corporate VIP charter company that does tours as well uh, out of the Collingwood Airport, which is just north of Toronto in Ontario. Uh, we fly the R66 and the EC-130. And uh, we're in the busy part of our season now, so luckily I was able to get on today. But uh, yeah, going flying right after this. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. For our listeners, if you haven't been to Collingwood, uh, I highly suggest it. I hung out with Marcus and his wife, Annie, uh, like a year ago up in Collingwood. Super awesome spot. Uh, I imagine a beautiful place to fly, so I'm pretty jealous. Uh, also joining us today uh, with a non-pilot perspective, more of the maintenance side of the house, is Mike Underwood of SVT uh, Aviation Maintenance. Mike, what's happening? Hey, Ollie. Not much. Still grinding. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. And Mike, would, would you mind just doing the same? Give a quick 30-second uh, overview of SVT and what you uh, what you guys are all about. Yeah, sure. So been a mechanic for going on 18 years now. Started this thing up about 10 years ago as a side gig, and now I've got a full-fledged uh, Robinson Service Center. Had about 60 clients that rotate in and out, and primarily focus on the R44 and the R66. Awesome. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. And Mike, make sure you're not twizzling that chair too much because it is a little bit creaky. Trying. <laughs> Stand still. Needs uh, a little oil. <laughs> needs a little oil. I guess you're good at working on helicopters, but not so good at working on your own chair. Uh, also, <laughs> also joining us is Ian Sweat. Uh, Ian Sweat is uh, uh, a friend of mine that I actually met at Maverick Helicopters when I was flying tours. Uh, air medical guy, and now actually most recently uh, a full-time member of my Celicopter team as our Celicopter sales uh, manager. So I'm super excited. Ian, what's happening? Hey, what's up, Halsey? Good to be here. Yeah, yeah. exciting stuff in the works. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, I, we could probably have a full podcast on kind of your decision on kind of exiting full-time flying and moving into the sales realm. Uh, but kind of the cool thing with Celicopter is uh, – you'll still be able to get some pretty neat flying opportunities, including yeah, exactly. uh, EC-135 EC uh, ferry here soon. So uh, we're excited to have Ian on. And our uh, last member of the panel is Zach Robinson. No relation to Robinson Helicopter. Have you done a DNA test? Because you could be entitled to large sums of money, Zach. Yeah, I'm still due to do the uh, Ancestry.com or uh, 23andMe. I'm sure it connects somewhere back there. But uh, yeah, I still mean, need to do tonight, that. You might have like some family stock options with Robinson Helicopters. I would probably take a look at that. Perhaps. Maybe back a few generations <laughs> across paths. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you do have the perfect last name for uh, helicopters. Uh, Zach and I met at flight school. Um, 
we kind of reconnected when he got his flying uh, job at uh, Air Evac. And uh, he's also been a member of the Celicopter sales team for, I think, about three years now. So lots of close contact with Zach. Zach, what are you flying right now and where are you located? So, right, with Air Evac, I've been flying the 206 Long Ranger going on my sixth year now with Air Evac, which is wow. crazy. It's flown by. Um, my base is in Snowball, Georgia, which is my hometown right outside of Atlanta. Um, and I'm three years there at that base now. Um, yeah, time's flying. But I uh, sell a copier for about three years now along with Air Evac and staying busy. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks to all you guys for joining the show today. Um, again, the whole concept and, and hope of the panel is to talk about some industry-related topics. In fact, I figured the easiest way for me to do that was just to check out my Vertical Daily uh, emails from Vertical Magazine and Vertical Online and just kind of pick out some topics that I felt were interesting. And then I'm sure uh, we'll be able to freestyle a little bit as well as, as things come up. But uh, one of the things that I want to talk about that was not necessarily on Vertical uh, is Hill Helicopters. Um, if you haven't heard of Hill Helicopters yet, uh, it's a a helicopter due to actually, I think, hit production in 2023. Maybe it's getting pushed back a little bit. I'm not quite sure. Uh, they're based out of Europe. And they're designing what seems to be, at least on paper, a pretty awesome helicopter. I think it's the HX-50 and then later a commercial HC-50. Um, pretty incredible. Uh, the performance of it seems pretty awesome. Uh, 5,000 hour, uh, uh, like component overhaul times across the board. So, uh, that's pretty incredible to have that kind of standardization, uh, and under a million dollar price tag, uh, substantially below a million dollars as, as of at least right now. And there's been kind of a lot of chatter within the industry of, you know, people that say, Hey, it's going to happen. Or other people that say it's not going to happen. Checking their website this morning, it looks like about over 600 people have placed deposits already. And I think that they're kind of using that deposit as their funding to, to keep the machine going as they start prototyping. And it does actually look like they are now starting to construct a helicopter. Uh, Marcus, I know that you and I had talked uh, previously about the Hill helicopter. And so I was just kind of curious of what you've heard, what your stance is, uh, and what you think about the this whole thing really yeah i mean i'm i'm really hopeful it does happen if if they can produce what they've put on paper uh it's really going to change up the oems uh how they look at developing their aircraft and and what they're able to do with new technology um i was on there they do this monthly ask me anything kind of uh, similar to what we're doing right now. They do a little uh, hosting with the, the main guy, it's Jason Hill, I believe, um, and a couple other guys. And they yeah. just go through the list of, of all the questions that people have. Um, and the last one was last week, I believe. I think there are over 700 deposits now on, I don't know if that's private and the, the commercial one included. Um, so that's a lot of aircraft um, if they're able to do it. They're proposing the way they're going to do it is, you know, like a car manufacturing uh, factory, you know, it moves down the assembly line quickly. He said that they'll be able to do, I think the first year, 250 aircraft once they're in full production mode. So um, 
All right. There's Looks a, like we're a little bit of technical difficulties with Marcus, um, but I think what he was going at is like, yeah, they're creating almost kind of like a Ford style assembly line. Um, and something else they're doing is uh, sounds like they're actually constructing and, and uh, fabricating most of their uh, parts and components. So their initial investment is going to be pretty high to be doing that. But then once the machine is going, they're not going to have to rely on any type of third party, uh, you know, vendors, you know, where they might have to buy, a, you know, Bell might have to buy a bolt for $150, whereas maybe if they were to produce it in-house, it would only be uh, $15. Marcus, I think we lost you there for a sec. Are you back on? I'm back. I heard you guys the whole time. Um, yeah, like you were saying, they're 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 moving ahead and it seems to be at a pretty you know not rapid crazy pace but they're they're producing new stuff every month and showing people what they're doing and they've got wheels for the turbine and the pretty much the whole fuselage assembled uh that they're showing everyone now so it's it's gonna change the way we buy and sell and operate these aircraft if if they're able to do it at a cost they're saying they're gonna do it at yeah, I mean, if I, I agree 100%, I'm hopeful. Uh, I, they definitely look cool. Um, and it's I kind of like view it as like the Tesla almost of helicopters and kind of like this dramatic innovation. And I think it's so dramatic that that's kind of what's given it some of the polarization. I know that there's a lot of people out there that are skeptical. Uh, their certification process is, it sounds like they're going to be fully certifying the aircraft for EASA and for FAA. Uh, however, it's going to be under like a home built uh, category airworthiness certificate. So essentially, if you purchase one of these aircraft, you actually go to the factory and help finish building your own aircraft. Because uh, I guess you have to do like 51% of the work to have that home built uh, category and class uh, airworthiness certificate. So definitely interesting. Anyone else on the panel uh, heard about the Hill and have any thoughts on it? But one thing that I noticed on it, just reading a little bit, was uh, they advertised, a, I think it was a 700 nautical mile range for the thing, which that would be, you know, that would be a game changer, I think. You know, Halsey, you and I just recently were looking for a customer that wanted some range on a helicopter, and uh, he only wants to go 305 miles. And it was tough to find an aircraft that would do that with the reserve that he needed. So something that could go 700 miles, I mean, that that would outperform most most aircraft, or at least light light aircraft on the market right now. Well, yeah, especially on the helicopter side. I mean, uh, when you and I were kind of going through that, uh, that looking at aircraft last week for the, our clients, specifically with range considerations, I don't know why I was so surprised to realize that helicopters just don't fly that far. Uh, I've been in helicopters <laughs> for a long time, so I, like I should have known, but uh, but it's like, yeah, I mean, it's we're you know, hey, can we use this aircraft because it has this auxiliary tank? I mean, when you're talking about 700 nautical miles, I mean, you're getting into like, you know, fixed wing TBM, you know, um, distances, which is pretty impressive. I mean, that's like what you would consider like a five state airplane uh, now kind of transitioning into a helicopter. So I think that's pretty cool. Uh, Zach, Mike, do you guys have any feedback on the Hill? Have you guys heard anything? Um, any hopes? Uh, are we are we Hill supporters or are we are we? pessimistic yeah like uh, marcus said i'm also very hopeful to see it come true um i think the people's first reaction to a lot of these things is that it's sounds too good to be true um with a price tag of around six hundred fifty thousand dollars, and that leads to some of the skepticism but 
uh, like Marcus said, they're able to, you know, kind of revolutionize that assembly line style production um, and get these things out to all the people that put deposits down. Uh, we'll see when the first one comes out, how it is. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm hopeful. Uh, if it happens, I want one um, yeah. because they're awesome. Um, I am like a little concerned. I was doing a little bit of research this morning just on the airworthiness side of the house. Like if that would really limit uh, where the aircraft can fly uh, in, you know, different airspaces. Hey, you can't fly in Bravo airspace or you can't fly, you know, in whatever. I couldn't necessarily find anything, uh, but it does sound like Hill helicopters on their website, on their FAQs, kind of leaves it like a little ambiguous. Like they think that there won't be too many restrictions. So I, I definitely think that that's one of my concerns. Marcus, have you heard anything about um, kind of operating limitations or airspace specific? I haven't heard anything on that side. Um, I think it's going to be, it's essentially going to be considered a home built aircraft is what that's going to fall under or an experimental category um, to start with the HX50. Once the C comes in, that'll be a fully certified aircraft and that, that I don't think there'll be any issues, but they've also said very openly that the difference between the HX and the HC is no difference. It's just going to be a matter of certification and time and money. So um, I think where there might be an issue is if it's a privately built aircraft is the resale side of things and transferring them back and forth because that can, you know, depending on the maintenance, who's maintaining it, what's going on there, that might add a, a bit more of a challenge down the road. But if you're going to fly it and keep it for 5,000 hours, it's not going to be an issue either. Yeah, totally. You know, I'm sure, um, you know, if it does hit production, which again, I'm hopeful that it does, um, you know, it's going to be a beta aircraft, right? It's going to be, um, they're going to have to probably work out uh, all sorts of different little nuances, you know, including like you just said, resale, you know, what does it look like to resell these things? Is there legality involved that um, maybe we're not even thinking about yet? So I'm optimistic, uh, but definitely, um, you know, a little bit concerned. Uh, I, I do have to say again, looking on their website this morning, they're very open. You know, it's uh, the deposit is a non-refundable deposit. You know, essentially they're selling uh, this dream of this new helicopter, this new technology. And if you want to be a part of that dream and get the best possible pricing, then you can be an early adapter and place that deposit now. Um, and I know, I personally know individuals that have placed, you know, deposits for four or five aircraft, you know, uh, and, and I saw around 600 plus deposits, but I think Marcus, you said recently over 700, uh, orders. So, I mean, that's pretty impressive. Um, you know, I definitely feel like Robinson helicopters would have to be feeling some pressure right now. I mean, I feel like Robinson is definitely within that same price point. Um, and if the Hill is everything that it says it's going to be, then I feel like it could really dramatically alter Robinson and, uh, and, you know, how popular they are. The R44 specifically has been kind of like, I think the number one sold civil helicopter. It has such great uh, use for private owners. Um, the Hill, I really feel like it could knock, knock that out. So definitely curious. Uh, I think the industry is going to continue to change. Uh, and one of those changes is also uh, unrelated to Hill, but it's kind of in the drone world. Uh, Ian and I actually got to go to, uh, I think, what was it Burlington, Vermont, Ian? Yeah, it was Burlington. 
Yeah, so we went to Burlington, Vermont uh, about a year ago. We checked out. Uh, Ian calls me. It's kind of a funny story because he's like, "Yeah, I set up this this uh, this meet and greet with this company, and they're making this EV tall this this aircraft that takes off like a helicopter, lands like a helicopter, but you know then transitions to fixed wing forward flight." And I don't know why I just had like I'm not really in the EV tall space, so I had never heard of them or researched it. But I, I just thought we were going to like show up to like this podunk hangar in Vermont. And, you know, there's going to be like this crazy prototype. Uh, and man, it was completely opposite. And why don't you set the stage a little bit of just going to beta air technologies? Yeah, I mean, you know, picture, I guess, something like Stark Laboratories, if everybody can picture <laughs> that from the Avengers. You know, you show up and they have like a, a room for every piece of this aircraft and every room is just like, it's this new kind of like trendy, you know, startup look, everything is very like, you know, comfortable and motivating looking and, and, and they're kind of doing all these tests and things on every different part of the aircraft. They have a hangar full of all kinds of aircraft. Um, they have their own flight school in-house, flight instructors in-house. Every employee there, I think it was something like 350 employees. I may be wrong there. I don't remember the exact number, but they had a good handful of employees and they provide flight training to every one of the employees no matter what you do there, you have the opportunity to go learn to fly an aircraft because they want you to understand what they do in aviation and aerodynamics and all that. Um, and then once you have your rating on, on the clock while you're working, you can take a break. You can go sign out one of the aircraft in the hangar and you can go fly it. Um, and then in the back of the hangar, they have this kind of, you know, their, their prototype there that is, you know, it has wings like an airplane. It has four electric motors, almost like some kind of drone. And then uh, it has a push prop on the back. And yeah, it looks like something almost out of a sci-fi movie, you know, like a spaceship. It's, it's pretty incredible. And they had a whole, uh, a whole full-scale simulator built for it, and it just kind of kept going. I think we went upstairs. They have all their offices, and they had a, a Michelin star chef that made lunch for them every day. Yeah, it was a, it was a really, really cool facility. I, 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 you can't even describe it to you. You, know, you have to see it firsthand to even believe it. Yeah, no, it was super cool. The whole experience was awesome. Obviously, it's a manned platform, and they're doing uh, testing right now. Uh, it's a, it's the machine flies, uh, again, not, not without a human, but I mean, Ian and I both flew a simulator. It's like, it's probably very close to not needing a human. Uh, I feel like, you know, my wife who doesn't have any helicopter experience or flying experience could get in that thing and fly it. I mean, it's like, you know, it was super easy. Uh, and again, they're in testing that's, it's legitimately flying. Uh, so that was kind of really cool to see. And on the drone side of the house, I read an article uh, on Vertical Daily recently that uh, Pearland, which is, I think, uh, close to you, right, Mike? Right outside of Houston? Yep. <clears throat> you have some clients there in Pearland. Um, that their police department has now gone to drones for uh, law enforcement uh, search and just law enforcement uses. You know, and essentially they're not using uh, helicopters anymore. And, you know, from my pilot perspective, that kind of freaks me out. I'm just kind of curious of what you guys feel uh, about drones. You know, are we 10 years away from, you know, drones kind of taking over everything? Are we 50 years? Uh, you know, I have some thoughts, but I'm kind of curious to hear some of your thoughts as well. I mean, my first thought with that was just, uh, you know, it's getting harder and harder to be a bad guy, right? You got a drone chasing you down with a with a camera on it versus the helicopter. They can launch those a lot quicker and easier. Um, I, I don't know if, I think the ones it wasn't, they, uh, they actually were the first one to get certified to do it out of line of sight too. Correct. I think that 
and you know they're still they're still being controlled by a human obviously so there's still there's still some employment for us in the future once they uh you know zone out the helicopters if that ever happens but i think there's always going to be a use for the pilots in one way or another yeah i mean i hope so um yeah you know i i guess my big thought is is just that obviously drones are incredible the technology uh within these drones have exponentially gotten way better uh and really cool um you know just in this last five to ten years you know probably five years really um i mean you can go and pick up a personal drone for under a thousand dollars and the capabilities of that drone are incredible uh, so i definitely feel like we're trending in a in a trajectory where drones could take over the world uh for the helicopter side uh, but i think that there's a lot of logistics involved first and foremost airspace I feel like there's a lot of airspace considerations of, you know, how, how can helicopters and airplanes be in an airspace with all these other drones? Cause I'm sure, you know, you could have so many drones up at once. So I think that that's kind of a big hurdle. Uh, Marcus I'm kind of curious in Canada, any other pushes or, or known industry uses that you're seeing drones being operated? Um, I've, I've heard of some people using them for ag now, actually. Um, I think DJI makes an ag drone that you can buy for somewhere in the realm of, it's like 30 or 40,000. Um, and they're using those now. I don't know, I haven't done much research on it to see if it's a viable business or how much space you can do, how many of them you'd need to actually do some of the, a lot of the ag work up here is forestry work too so there's, there's some huge plots of land that you got to cover so i don't know how much that'll take over but um it'd be interesting to see i know i've heard of some companies doing some stuff already trying it out um and then curious about on our side of things with the ev tall side of of uh, transportation of people that'll be the the big one coming out is are people going to one, are they just going to have the range for the stuff that we do? That'd be similar to in the, in the States of like uh, going from New York to the Hamptons. Are they going to be able to take people that far? Are they going to have the battery power to do that and return? Um, it's neat to just kind of watch and, and see what's going to happen. But like you said, there, there might not be a pilot involved. There might be, who knows? But <laughs> we'll have to find a way that uh, we can maintain our our place in the industry as well if that happens. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of uses for drones, but I still think that there's a lot of uses for for manned aircraft as well. In fact, one of Celicopter's clients, uh, Skyscopes, I mean, they were founded as a drone company, uh, but then found that uh, because of line of sight and some, some of the survey work that they do with very long power lines and utilities, uh, drones just weren't an option. Um, and so they've also had to adapt a helicopter fleet so I'm sure that we'll probably kind of see that as our first iteration where there's companies that are utilizing drones for portions of their operation, uh, but still using helicopters for other portions. I, I'm guessing we're quite, a, quite, you know, 10 plus years at least from, you know, really seeing maybe major changes where like us pilots might have to kind of be shaking in our boots a little bit. Uh, but, you know, Again, I think we just have to adapt and kind of see where it goes. Uh, I think yeah, that. 
Good. I hadn't thought about before too, Marcus, you mentioning ag, that kind of seems, you know, spraying almost seems like the, the kind of a perfect thing for a drone. You program in the field or the plot that needs to be sprayed and let the thing go do its work, fill it up yes. when it needs to be filled up. Like that, that's a good point. Well, and talk about the safety aspect too. You know, um, I don't know this year, you know, active right now is the active ag season. I haven't really heard of a ton of accidents yet. Um, but I know even just a couple of seasons ago, I think there were six or seven uh, helicopter accidents uh, flying ag, including a good buddy of mine uh, that had a wire strike. Uh, thank God he, he survived. But, you know, I do actually love the idea of putting drones in these other missions that are uh, kind of historically dangerous, you know, flying in the wire environment. Uh, not only are the drones probably better than people at avoiding wires, but if they do hit one, uh, you're out equipment, right? But you're not out loss of life. So I definitely like the safety aspect of it. Um, but, you know, again, as a pilot, it's also a little bit fearful. Uh, I do think yeah. that obviously there's always going to be a private sector for flying helicopters. I think we can all agree that that feeling of flying a helicopter, uh, well, Mike doesn't know because he's not a pilot, but, uh, you know, the rest <laughs> of us understand that, that uh, you know, flying the aircraft, um, uh, is kind of a magical thing. So, uh, Mike, any of your clients uh, have any cool drones or you see anything there in Texas? Uh, with respect to what you guys are talking about, no, not yet. There's a lot of talk about it, though, using the uh, the drones for spraying, things of that nature. Yeah. I, I, I actually I, have uh, – sorry. I was going to say I have kind of a funny story. I just remembered with a drone, it was, it was one of my last EMS shifts – and uh, it was first thing in the morning. I was out there pre-flooding the helicopter, and the hangar kind of sits up uh, on, like, top of a hill that looks down at the hospital. And I see a, a police cruiser, like, take off real fast, you know, enough to gain my attention out of there. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. And then I hear all these sirens, 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 sirens. And I get a call, and they said, hi, this is dispatch. But it wasn't, you know, my dispatch. And I come, like, as I'm thinking, it's, it's a 911 dispatch. And they said that somebody had stolen an ambulance. They'd driven it down to the entrance of the hospital, crashed it, and then taken off running into the woods, and they think they're hiding somewhere right behind my hangar. So then shortly <laughs> after, they, they describe the guy, and they tell me to you know, keep an eye out for him. Then shortly after, all of these police come up to the, to the hangar, and it's just, you know, just absolutely swarming with police everywhere, uh, fully armed. And they bring two drones, and they launch two drones from there. And they were talking about them as they're looking for them. They would launch one at a time while the other quick charges and keep one in the air. And, um, yeah, they had, they said the majority of the cost of the drone, you know, it's a little drone. It's probably, it's probably like two and a half feet by two and a half feet. And the majority of the cost was the camera, you know, because they could pick up the heat signature and all that. And it could zoom in like a FLIR and uh, I don't know who made it, but yeah, they're looking around for this guy for 30, 40 minutes. And they actually asked us if we could lift off and go help look, you know, but I, that got shot down by, by our managers immediately. They didn't want the risk involved. Um, but yeah, they ended up catching the guy, you know, like 40 yards away. He came out of the woods and they arrested him and took him away. It's kind of an exciting morning. Was yeah. it the drone that actually <laughs> located them? I don't think so. I don't remember finding him on the drone. We just kind of heard some shouting like right around the corner. Um, he was hiding over where there's a little like uh, uh, like pre-built kind of home. That I don't know if it's what their security uses or whatever, but uh, he was over there and they, they kind of found him. I don't know if it was with a dog or a person or what. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's uh, that's one way to start your morning. <laughs> yeah. Guy that just stole an ambulance. Awesome. Um, I feel like I saw recently too, um, uh, like a story online where a car in Florida crashed, um, 
into a helicopter on a uh, like the University of Florida hospital uh, had a ground pad. Zach, did oh, you was hear it a four hundred seven? Yeah, it's four hundred seven. I think I heard about it. I didn't read the article or see any pictures, um, but it doesn't surprise me. Some some of these ground pads are so exposed right out to the parking lot or the road. Um, this person obviously wasn't looking where they were going. <laughs> Not sure the details exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I well, saw I saw the video of it. I think it, I think if it's the same one that we're talking about, yeah, it was like a elderly couple in a minivan, and they actually pull onto the pad, thinking it's the road, and instead of backing out, they try to pull a UE around the helicopter and kind of bump the stinger as they go. <laughs> The whole time security is sitting right there. And I think a paramedic runs over out of an ambulance and is like points to it. Like, do you see what's happening here? Are you going to do something? Please do something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's God, that's kind of sad. This old couple, I can totally picture it. I was with uh, Hillary's grandparents. We were driving just like a year and a half ago and they're great. They're pretty sharp, but they're a little bit older <laughs> and uh, like driving through this parking lot going over like curbs it's like they're not even flinching. Like it's not even a thing that we're driving over these curbs. So I can just kind of imagine. I saw another story actually too. I think Ian, you sent it to me. I forget what national park it was, but um, some guy landed an A-star um, in a state park. Uh, you know, looked like on a river and had a picnic with his with his wife or girlfriend and ended up getting a pretty sizable fine. Did you guys see that article? Yeah, I, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, and when they when he was confronted by it, I think they came out on a boat and he said like, "Oh, I had to make a precautionary landing for the weather," and they weren't really buying that as he's <laughs> set up there with his wife and his picnic. It's like it's blue skies. It's like, yeah. <laughs> no, actually, I don't know what the weather was. I mean, I would have probably gone like, "Oh yeah, I had a chip light," and conveniently, I also packed a full picnic just in case I had a chip light. So uh, yeah. <laughs> maintenance is on the way. Uh, Marcus, I know up in Canada, there's probably a lot of really cool off airport opportunities. Do you guys have to be, you know, down here in the States, we have wildlife sanctuaries. Uh, and I always thought the wildlife sanctuaries were kind of like, uh, they're not really enforced. And, uh, one day for weather, actually, I did have to descend pretty low, probably 500 feet or so AGL. Uh, and I got a call that I had, you know, essentially flown too low within the sanctuary. And I explained the weather and, and they were cool with it. But I mean, they actually take it really seriously. It's, what's what's it like up there in Canada? Yeah, same thing. I mean, we have a, a lot more land that's undeveloped. So there's a lot of national parks um, where we are. Algonquin is one of the biggest ones. It's one of the biggest national parks we have. Um, so there's minimum altitudes to fly over and you can't land there without permission. And um, lots of people would want to. I actually, I was flying over a couple of weeks ago and you're just as a helicopter pilot, always looking for those adventurous places to go. And there was tons of spots. And then when I was looking I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm over the park. They can't go down there. So, but <laughs> there's also uh, it's interesting because there's no boundary line on the ground. You have no clue. It's, it's strictly on your map. So you got to pay attention around here as well. Plus there's all the provincial parks and everything around the area. It's, it's, it's very similar, you know, stay out of those protected areas. But once you go North of where we are, there's also a lot of crown land, which is, is, kind of just fair game um which can make it fun there's lots of spots to go and go fishing or if you want to go for that picnic go for it <laughs> yeah totally i mean same with oregon where i learned uh, up in hillsborough zach as well can attest i mean the west practice area right zach just off airport galore you know and so many cool spots where um you know i think it's all government land it's not sanctuary or anything uh where you can go out land uh we never really shut down or 
did any fun adventures, you know, because it was flight training. But uh, definitely one of the cool parts of, you know, flying helicopters is be able to go out and do a little picnic. Uh, Marcus, I am also curious a little bit because I want to talk a little bit uh, of air medical, specifically helicopter air medical, of course. And I know that Canada is a little bit different. I know that you're not in the air medical world, but I heard recently that it's like all twin engine helicopters, two pilot crew and no night operations. Am I making that up or is there truth to that? Uh, you're half right. Uh, <laughs> there's definitely <laughs> night ops. Um, it is all twins. So one of the rules in Canada commercially to operate at night, you have to have with passengers on board, you have to have a twin engine. Um, there are some acceptances, but mostly you got to have a twin. Um, I'd say the major difference in Canada compared to the States is all of the provinces have their own, most of them do, um, have their own contract for just one air medical company. So in Ontario, we have what's called Orange, and then it's government funded. Uh, they operate 139s and uh, PC-12s, and they cover the entire province. And they're the only ones that do any type of patient transport um, throughout the province. And then BC, there was an article in Vertical last week, uh, just awarded a contract to a company to, they had three different companies and now they're going to all one. So it's not the uh, private sector, uh, I guess you'd say. It's not the race to the scene to get the first helicopter there and be the first on site to do the transport or you know university funded. Um, it's all government funded and it's, it's just one contract and it's, it's a, it's a pretty good gig if you can get on with that. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely heard of orange before. Um, and that's pretty cool. I, you know, I definitely know that one of the issues with air medical here in the States is just the cost, you know, and I'm sure we could probably go into a whole, uh, other podcast about healthcare and how the, how we differ in healthcare between, uh, Canada and the United States. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's significant. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a price for everything, right? So, uh, you know, that money's coming from somewhere. Most likely, I'm guessing it's a it's a government-funded deal, part of your taxation. Uh, but again, that's kind of a neat, in my opinion, cool taxation uh, because it's really kind of potentially worth it for everyone, you know, because you just never know when you're going to have to take that air medical flight. Um, one of the things, I, you know, I flew air medical. Uh, Ian's flown air medical. Zach is currently flying air medical. One of the really challenging parts of air medical for me was the nights. Um, I was never able to really fully switch my body from being a night sleeper to a day sleeper and, you know, operating a helicopter uh, in the middle of the night. And it's one of the parts of air medical that kind of uh, put me into an early helicopter air medical retirement. I think I kind of only did it for a couple of years. Zach, since you're currently flying air medical still and Ian uh, as well, you're just kind of getting out of it yourself. Do you guys, you know, I think it's kind of like, it seems like when you're in the moment and you're not able to sleep or you're feeling fatigued and all this crazy stuff is happening, you kind of feel like you're the only person that has to deal with this. And then you start talking to other air medical pilots and it's kind of like everyone slightly feels the same. So, uh, Zach, what are some of the things that you're doing as an air medical pilot to help keep yourself sharp during your night hitch? Yeah, I mean, as long as I've been doing it, I still don't think you can get used to it completely. Um, you know, there will be night, three nights in a row I sleep all night. And the last four nights of the hitch, you're out all night each night. And it's completely unpredictable. You don't know when it's coming. Um, 
really just trying to sleep as much as I can during the day um, and, and still try to get some sleep at night. Uh, I still haven't found out the secret, secret formula to it. I don't think anybody has. Um, but, but you're right. I think it affects everyone at least a little bit. Uh, it's unnatural. It's completely unnatural to, to wake up in the middle of the night like that repeatedly and then try to get back on a regular sleep schedule. Um, as far as techniques go, techniques, like I said, just sleep as much during the day as I can. Uh, that's about all I can do. Yeah. I mean, it's challenging. Um, you know, cause obviously people are going to get hurt at night, so you can't really just say, all right, well, we're not going to fly aeromedical missions at night. You know, um, Marcus, you did say it's always a two pilot crew though. Yeah, they're full. They're, they're operating 139s or, you know, big twin engine stuff. I think the, uh, the new BC contracts go into a 169. Um, so they're always running two. they're running NVG. Um, but yeah, I, guys that I've talked to too, that are friends of mine that work air medical, they, they say the night part is the, the hardest part of the whole job. Yeah. It's really challenging because it's just not, it's, we're not nocturnal as humans. And so I, I I don't know the answer, right? Like, you know, I know that some bases have kind of switched up or some companies, I think Metro uh, with a lot of their bases, if not all their bases does like only three nights and then the rest is four days. So you're limiting how many nights you're actually flying. I think that's a good start. Um, And I'm surprised that there's actually not more accidents because just based on my personal experience, flying a, a helicopter at three in the morning after not really sleeping for the last three nights and not really getting restful sleep during the day, it's like it, you know, you're definitely impaired, you know, you don't mean to be, you don't want to be, but it's just the case of the matter. Uh, but it seems like it's all, you know, it, there's not that many accidents that I'm aware of that are kind of caused by that. Uh, Zach, I do know like the air medical company that you work for supports pilots decisions. Have you or any of your, co-workers ever declined a flight because of fatigue? Yeah, a few times. Um, you know, I've called crew rest a few times on a, on a night hitch after three long ones. You know, three long flights, you're pretty, you know, in the clear to say, look, that's enough. Um, but even after two or even one sometimes, if it's been a long week, uh, you you want to decline and you almost feel like you should. And and all maybe five times in my time flying air medical, I've, I've uh, taken crew rest. Um but like you said, you might be a little impaired, but there's another motivation there that's like you don't want you want to stay off the radar. You think people are watching you and oh, this guy's calling crew rest, he's you know, declining one because he's tired again. That's one of the external pressures. But a few times, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the external pressures are real, you know, and I definitely experienced that as well. But I will say it look it, it does feel like at least, you know, because I also worked at Air Evac, uh, but it seems kind of like an industry wide adoptance of kind of accepting pilots decisions. You know, I had called crew to rest a couple of times. I declined because of fatigue. Uh, and it always seemed like I was supported. Um, Ian, uh, obviously I know that you've been flying air medical for how many years total? Uh, I flew it for, what was it? Probably five and a half years or so. I mean, so that's a good chunk of time. Did you ever adapt to the nights? Did you struggle with it as well? No, if anything, I feel like I got worse as it went on, especially, uh, you know, I became a, a float pilot or, you know, a travel pilot. And and it was worse because I'm getting my rest in hotels and you're never really fully familiar with the area like you are, you know, being based in one place for years and years. So, no, I, I didn't get used to it. I, I always dreaded the nights and 
Um, you know, at MedTrans, it was seven, seven days on, seven days off, and then seven nights on. And seven nights can be a lot if you're just getting, you know, a, a, a few nights of no sleep at the beginning of that seven days. You know, I like, like you mentioned, some people do either three, three nights or three days, four nights or four days, three nights and kind of do it that way and break it up. And I've, I've always thought about like, you know, there, a lot of guys I talked to, like you said, they hate the nights, they dread them. And um, I've talked to a lot of guys that would said they would take a pretty significant pay cut to never fly a night shift again in EMS. And I've always thought, why not take that, make a stipend to the night pilots, pay the day pilots a little less and have only day pilots and only night pilots. I know people would argue currency, right? But yeah, have people, because really I think the safest way to do it would be have somebody that their schedule is they stay up during the night and they sleep during the day and they do that sure. all the time. And that's their regular schedule. Yeah. Kind yeah, of, I mean, that's, kind of, I just don't know how many people are like that. Like I, I agree. I would go across, I would go and do work over and talk to the different pilots, you know, and some of the guys have been doing it for 15, 20 years and they fully switch, you know, and it's fine for them. Like they're, they sit in the air medical base on their night shift and they're watching movies and TV and they're wide awake. You know, whereas I, if I tried to watch that, I would just pass out on the lazy boy, you know, like my body, even if I slept during the day, it's like, all right, it's nighttime, go to sleep, you know? So I, I think that that would be a positive way to do it. I just don't think that there's that many people that are weird like that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I just think it's a, it's a hard ask. I don't know. I, I like the Canadian way, twin engine, two pilots, you know, uh, at least you got two brains in there, even if they're both operating only at about 50% because of fatigue, yeah, it averages out. Right. So, um, you know, maybe Zach, you can start flying two pilot crew and you're the long ranger there. We'll just have to figure out a way to get the patient's feet to not actually be where the co-pilot is. Yeah. Co-pilot would be I hanging remember one off the of front crew, of the stretcher. At one of the uh, bases I was covering at, one of my crew was doing kind of research on this whole crew rest thing. And they had, I can't remember the statistic, but it was, it was the amount of pilots that had been surveyed that said at some point or another, they were falling asleep while flying the aircraft. And the number was, you know, scarily high. It was, it was a majority of pilots at fly EMS had said at one point or another, they had probably fallen asleep while flying. Well, yeah, my first base, I was, uh, I was working the border in Texas. And uh, so our legs were fairly long. I was in a 407. So it was a little bit quicker than the 206. But I mean, you're flying like an hour, 20 hour, 30 minute leg, getting back to base. And it's, you know, it's the situation that Zach was talking about where, you know, it's your fourth night in a row where you're flying all night. And I remember like flying back, like telling my flight crew, like, Hey, look, I just, let's keep talking, you know, like, don't like you guys don't fall asleep because I need someone to talk to because I'm, my eyes are feeling very, very heavy up here. And autopilot's on, it's smooth. The helicopter has that kind of hum to it. It's, you know, it's, it's it kind of like a peaceful a way bit. to, <laughs> a, a nice a nice way to kind of fall asleep, right? Especially if it's a cold night out and then you get in and you got the heat blasting on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, helicopter heat, in my opinion, has never worked out. Like they, like they can make these machines fly. Uh, but like for the 206 and the 407 specifically with the heat, like blasting on your right or left calf, left calf, I guess, like Zach, you've probably experienced that where it's like, can't we just have like heat in the whole helicopter? Like, why does it have yeah. to be blowing, scolding hot air on my left calf? It just doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> well, it heats up so fast that you really just need to turn it on a little bit 
and then you open up the vent to get the cold air in, mixes it up, and that usually works. <laughs> yeah, see, but you shouldn't have to do that. Like, the thing yeah. flies. Like, they engineered a, a machine that flies. Like, figure out the heat, please. You think. It's like, it's like flying the tours. <laughs> Granted, I get it with, you know, when Ian and I were, and, and Zach, too, flying tours, you know, the H-130 is like a big uh, greenhouse, you know, flying in the Mojave Desert. And so I always kind of thought it was funny. Like, man, they created this amazing machine but they can't make an air conditioning that can actually keep passengers comfortable. Again, extreme heat. It was like 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So. That, the T2s kept up pretty good. It was the B4s yeah, that were really slow. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the T2s were a little bit better, but it wasn't like, look, I, I got a Kia Telluride, and that thing does great. You know, like, how can my Kia Telluride keep me so cool and and – and helicopter manufacturers can't make an AC. That's all. This is my argument. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Just, just my argument. Um, hey, final topic that I want to talk about. It's kind of a um, sad deal. Um, was the Rotax Chinook accident uh, that happened this past year? Have you guys seen that video? It's the Chinook. Uh, I think doing a water pickup with a Bambi bucket and then kind of just starts spinning out of control. You guys see that one? Yeah, I have. Yep. So I was reading uh, Vertical had posted an article on Friday uh, with kind of a preliminary report showing that the pretty significant evidence to an iPad uh, getting lodged into the pedals and uh, not allowing the pilot and co-pilot to obviously correct the yaw of the aircraft. Do you guys see that article? I did. I mean, that's crazy. Um, you know, I, I know at Air Evac – you, you fly with an EFB. I think you fly with two of them. Uh, we did when, when I was mm -hmm. there. Uh, I know a lot of private owners that are flying aircraft with uh, iPads and things like that. That's a pretty scary thing um, <clears throat> to get something lodged in there. Uh, obviously, you guys all have extensive flying backgrounds in different parts of the industry. Have you guys ever experienced anything in flight coming you know, into your control surfaces that probably shouldn't be there, like an iPad? I've had a checklist fall down into the pedals a few times uh, in the 206, and it, it doesn't impede the movement of the pedals at all, but it definitely like freaks you out a little bit when you see something go down there. Um, I think it was if it was something as large and as clunky as an iPad that actually got the pedals stuck in a situation where you're on approach or even hovering, um, there's really not much you can do. Yeah. yeah I mean, no, I've had like a, you know, I've had a force trim failure in flight in a 109 SP, which is you're just fighting the sass at that point and the controls are stiff. And I thought for a second it would seize, but I can't imagine, you know, actually having something restricting you, you know, or a full control seizure like that. Yeah. And I think it's something, I think the article um, said something within like 11 to 12 seconds, you know, the Chinook had contacted the water and, you know, had the accident, uh, you know, so things happen fast when the aircraft starts spinning, obviously. Um, I mean, essentially it's I, just a, it's a stuck pedal at that point, right? It's just a, you know, foreign object stuck pedal. Yeah, it's crazy. It's so true. You know, it's stuck pedal is kind of that weird thing where we've all kind of been trained in stuck pedal. And I've actually always asked. Uh, I remember last time I had a bell. I had a bell slot and they came up to Hillsborough and we were doing stuck pedal. And I asked, like, what do stuck pedals actually happen? You know, like how, what actually causes a stuck pedal? You know, sure enough. Yeah. I mean, here's an example of this iPad getting lodged. Um, you know, and I, I kind of personally feel like, at least in my training, that the stuck pedal was always like, okay, we're going to kind of do it, but 
the instructor doesn't actually fully understand it all that well either. So it was never like a maneuver that was super well rehearsed. Obviously in a Chinook, it might be different. Uh, Marcus, I think Canada, a, go ahead. Ian. A simulator is the best, you know, really the best for that. I got to do some good uh, stuck pedal or tail rotor failure stuff, like from a hover in, a, in the simulators. And uh, you know, it's not, it's not totally realistic, but I think it's good to, you know, you get the, the motions down of what you need to do, you know, the getting your, getting your engines off and performing an auto rotation. If you can't, can't fly away from it. Yeah. Cause I mean, correct me wrong. Even when you're getting your, your certificates, I don't think there's anything on a practical test for the FAA that you're doing stuck pedal. Um, no, needing to demonstrate isn't. stuck pedal. So Marcus, there's nothing that... in any type of 135 check ride either. It's not, it's not required to be demonstrated. What about in Canada, Marcus, are you guys doing stuck pedal work? We are, um, we train it. Um, it's usually required, um, I don't know if it's actually like a, an actual requirement on the, uh, on any check ride or a flight test, but you do have to, the, um, examiner can choose to give you a stuck pedal. Um, whether that be stuck or loss of effectiveness. Um, so I actually just did training the other day with, um, a good friend, Richard Lejoie, who was a former test pilot at Airbus and he does kind of three or four different variants of stuck pedal, which is fun to do and need to go see. One of the favorite ones is you pull into a hover about 300 feet and then he just kicks the pedal in and you have to recover. Um, so it's lower and nose down, get your speed back. And, and you know, we're practicing it all the time, but how that works in a Chinook, I'm not familiar with the Chinook operation or, or the aircraft enough to know, you know, obviously that's quite a bit different than a tail rotor and having two blades spinning above your head. So how you recover from that, if, if it's different, if it's the same recovery or, you know, they don't have a big tail that, that keeps them straight when they get airspeed. So, um, that side of that back to the accident, I have, I don't know how they would have resolved that or, or how they train for that, but I'm curious to know. Yeah. Yeah. I might need to, uh, I got a buddy of mine now. It's actually flying, um, fire missions in the Chinook. Maybe I can get him on the podcast and kind of discuss that further because yeah, I mean, it's a Chinook is a completely different beast, you know, specifically with yaw, no tail rotor, no big vertical fin that can help keep that nose straight uh, in forward flight. So it might be a, might be a very horrible emergency to get, you know, in the Chinook. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's awful when something like that happens. Um, I think it's a good reminder that if you are flying with an iPad or flying with other things to make sure that all that stuff is secure, you know, um, a lot of them are suction mounts, you know, and that's always a little bit concerning because the, you know, the suction can come off. Um, I always, when I was teaching kind of made it a point to my students, like, Hey, let's look around the cockpit. Is there anything in the cockpit that can get under our controls or between our pedals? You know, I think it just takes kind of that extra care. And then of course, bad things just happen sometimes, you know, um, the, the iPad could have just fallen out of the guy's lap, you know, honest mistake. Um, but it just shows, uh, that, you know, something as simple as just having your iPad get stuck between pedals can turn into a, just a c- catastrophe. Um, Mike, I know that a lot of your clients, you know, utilize iPads, things like that on the, in the Robinson side of the house. Um, do you have like a preferred mount that you kind of suggest to them, uh, to help kind of keep it so it's not falling off? 
Yeah, a lot of the guys, I think almost everyone uses an iPad, and the most popular mount seems to be the one that has the three suction cups on it. It actually contours the inside of the windscreen. So, uh, and to my knowledge, not anyone that I'm aware of has had one, you know, fall off or, or fail. Your your audio is a little weak there, Mike. So I'm not sure if your microphone got disconnected. Uh, but I think what you're saying is that there's a, a three suction mount. Uh, I, I know what you're talking about. I've seen those before. Uh, I also like, you know, if you're able to in the Robinson have the pilot bar, you know, over the pilot's legs, and then actually have the mount, you know, directly connected there. To me, that's kind of probably the most ideal setup. But if you don't have that, then yeah, you got to rock the suction. Um, I've definitely, I remember flying around South Texas in an R44 one time and the, the suction was falling off the windscreen and the iPad was overheating. Uh, I almost crashed the helicopter because I was trying to figure out what the heck was going on with this, this iPad setup. So you definitely got to, you know, check yourself. It's uh, not only can the iPads provide distraction, but you know, obviously it can be a, a hazard and falling and things like that. So uh horrible tragedy and uh, you know, hopefully a, a learning lesson for, for all of us in the industry that really got to make sure that we're keeping those controls clear. Uh, but Hey guys, I really appreciate y'all, you know, joining for the panel today. I haven't done a panel for a long time. It's uh, it's a little bit trickier, you know, so I, I appreciate uh, everyone coming on uh, providing your, your feedback. Again, I want to continue to do panels and I'm sure I'll get better at uh, curating them. So I appreciate y'all uh, working with me on that today. Do you guys have any parting thoughts before we uh, call it quits here today? Going once, going twice. Nice. Okay, nothing. <laughs> well, for our for our listeners out there, thank you so much for listening to the Helicopter Podcast. Um, I believe a couple episodes ago, I was telling you about how we've now launched our own social media. Uh, before it was kind of attached to Helicopter, my uh, Helicopter brokerage, and now we're kind of giving the helicopter podcast, its own identity on social media, both Instagram, Facebook. So please go on, follow us. We're going to be producing not only podcast content, but hopefully some other cool content. And we're working on some other fun projects that I'm hoping to be able to announce fairly soon. And we're doing video, um, set up this cool little studio coming at you live from Redmond, Oregon in my house. So, uh, stoked to be doing video podcasts. So these will go up on uh, at least YouTube and I'm sure some others. So I will share locations for video uh, once we kind of nail that down. So uh, again, I appreciate y'all listening to the podcast. Marcus, Mike, Ian, and Zach, thank you guys so much for joining and we'll catch you guys on the next helicopter podcast. See you guys. Thanks, Halsey. See ya. Thank you guys.